right, hello everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Attention to Detail. I am sorry again for the, the longer hiatus than normal between episodes. As I mentioned on our, on our last episode, a lot of work for me personally and, and I think for a lot of people coming out of the pandemic, but it's been an incredibly busy time. But, but we're back with another episode and I am joined again by my fantastic co-host, Hannah Reffitt. Hannah, how are things going today? I know you've been busy as well. Yeah, things are good. Things are busy. Just every day is different, but still jam packed. But it's I can't complain. Like life is drastically different than maybe a year ago this time. But you know what? I think things are good and I'm I'm really happy. Great. How are you doing? How are things? I'm doing well. Well, we wanted to I mean, we wanted to start off the show just very briefly Something that I don't like talking about on the podcast is is non-music related issues, but we are an Indianapolis-based podcast, and I'm currently in Indianapolis. And uh, like you said, off air, like woke up to another piece of terrible news this morning, and specifically Indianapolis relating. There was a a mass shooting, as probably by the time this airs, all of our n- listeners will know. Um, really sad to see that in Indianapolis. It, it becomes a little more tangible and real in some way, at least in my experience today, when it happens in the city you live in uh, versus just something you see on the news. But but every time you see it, it's, it's just kind of depressing. And so, uh, you know, because we're an Indianapolis-related podcast, I figured today, good opportunity to just include in the show notes some some resources and places that People could potentially donate if they wanted to to um, try to try to end this scourge of of gun violence in the United States. It's just it's like a daily thing it seems, and and today it it hit Indianapolis in the most tragic of ways. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Hannah. But but yeah, it's sorry to start the pot off on a little sour note, but then we'll get into the music after this. Yeah, I'm still I'm still processing. It's it is shocking when it happens in your own community. Um, I will say it outright: like gun violence must end in this country, and I will root myself deeply in that statement. And um, my heart goes out to to the families, and I just hope that we see some sort of change. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think yeah, it's it's not really my professional place to comment on it, but I wanted to highlight it on the podcast. And I think I, I would hope that pretty much all of our listeners would agree with you that gun violence has to end. I think part of the problem in this country is that we often take a very circuitous route to trying to to do that. So we'll put some resources in the in the show notes today, which is something we don't normally do. But f- seeing that this happened in Indianapolis, it's very close to home. So in any case, on to better and brighter topics. Um, today, we're going to be talking about returning to live concerts, uh, something that is starting to happen, and it's great to see. And um, I forgot to ask, I should ask also right off the bat, Hannah, are you, uh, are you, have you started at least getting vaccinated? Do you have uh, one? Or I am halfway vaccinated. I am, nice. I am delighted. I will be fully vaccinated in the beginning of May. And two weeks after that is around my birthday. And I am planning on going mildly wild. I'm very excited good, to go good. and like, hug people and just have 
a okay a pandemic cdc approved good time yeah well i will hey, still you, behave we can, myself we can do that in indianapolis because i will also be uh, april 19th in a few days i'll get my second shot so Ooh, i'm nice. excited yeah so great news and what part of what that means is coming back to live concerts and so i wanted to talk today a little bit about uh two parts of this and and the first part is something that I realized I'm, I'm not sure how much we've necessarily covered on this podcast. Our listeners um, who have stuck with us over the course of many, many episodes have listened to an enormous amount of stuff about how to listen to music and techniques for helping to do that. And I think that's that's the point of most of what we do here. But there's this other element of going to live concerts, which is the kind of, for lack of a better word, etiquette or comportment that that people feel is required of them when they go to a concert and all of the traditions that surround this kind of ritual-like experience in the concert hall. And so I wanted to start by talking a little bit about that and answering actually some some listener questions that, that I've gotten through our website, but also just, I think, more generally some, some familiar questions that people have. Um, and Hannah, this is, you'll be an excellent resource on this because as you've mentioned several times on the podcast before, um, you uh, started at the ISO and had not been to many classical concerts. And since then you've, you've gone to, to probably hundreds. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts, just, just kind of starting off the bat, what was your experience like? And did you, did you have any moments or did you feel out of place in the concert hall, didn't know what to do, and can you point to specific areas that you remember as being challenging? I was very timid. Thinking back to early days when I was at the ISO, I was very timid about even going in to listen because I did not know how exactly to behave. I mean, like, I was... I am very, I had a very privileged upbringing in that, like I was, a, I was able to go to performances, live performances. They were just weren't classical music based performances. Cause it's just like not a area that I was privileged enough to have that sort of experience in, but I had other, other pr privileges in that we went to musicals quite often and, um, things of that matter. Yet I was still a little intimidated by hopping into the uh the hall and just sitting in and watching because I did not know when to clap and when to not clap and um things of that matter so I think it really took um being encouraged by the people that I was working with like oh I think you'll like this go sit in and go go give it a listen and then just very just sort of chilling out about it, just realizing like, oh, I have this great opportunity of of working here and I got to really know some of the musicians and then I wanted to see them perform. Um, and so that was very helpful. And then I think, yeah, the the biggest thing for newcomers is just like, when do I clap? When do I clap? And then also if you're not familiar with the piece, the piece might like sort of 
catch you off guard and you might think that it has ended, but it has not. And so you clap there and then you're like, oh no. And you just get so embarrassed. It's like you're in high school again. Um, so that was generally like my first, um, experience, but like, I think we'll say this later on the, in the podcast today, but the more it's just like riding a bike or, or any sort of like new activity that you learn how to do, the more you do it, the better you're going to get at it. And the more, and the more enjoyment you're going to get out of it. Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot there that you mentioned. So hopefully, and we'll talk about this on the second part, but hopefully the, the kind of elephant in the room of not knowing how to listen or what to listen for or that kind of stuff. Hopefully we've dealt with that in some way on this podcast before and our listeners can go back and listen to the many episodes that we've uh, recorded that that all talk about that in some way. And so so that's my hope for our listeners. But I think what, what I want to talk about first is some of the other stuff you mentioned there, which is like not so much listening related stuff, but uh, etiquette related stuff or just just weird things that that we do uh, in the concert hall or that we have done that make people potentially feel uncomfortable. And the first one I think you highlighted there, probably the one that I hear the most and people's greatest nervousness is, when do I clap? And this is actually, uh, as kind of an insider look, you know, this is something that's like a, a hotly debated topic at the highest levels of the classical music industry. Should we care about this? Should we, um, what can we do to, if we don't care about this, what can we do to make people feel better? If we do care about this, how can we give people signs when, when and when not to applaud? And I'll just kind of lay out the, the, the general discussion over when to clap or not. And I'm curious to hear your reactions, Hannah. Um, most people, there's kind of a continuum where people fall on, but the challenge with a lot of classical music is that unlike uh, normal songs in other genres that we listen to, classical music has, a lot of pieces have movements. And the challenge is that traditionally, you don't clap between movements of a piece. You only clap at the end of a piece. And as you also mentioned, Hannah, even pieces that don't have movements often have, it's hard to tell sometimes when they've ended. There, there might be a fake ending, there might be a big climax and then a sudden pause. And it's a real tough thing to know when you're expected to be totally silent and just sit there and then when it's done, launch into thunderous applause. And if people go to classical concerts, they'll often notice, you know, if a soloist plays the end of the last movement of Brahms Concerto or something, and it's a great performance, the audience might launch into applause before they're even quite done with the piece because it was so rousing and everyone's so excited. But for newcomers, that's really hard because you're asking yourself, is the piece done? Um, the thought process from from some of the more traditionalists in the classical music world is that works, if, if a work has movements as opposed to being a standalone work, then there's something that ties together the movements of that piece. So if you have a symphony in four movements, 
there's some sort of emotional narrative roadmap that the symphony is following that makes it one cohesive piece. Otherwise, the argument is that the composer would have just published it as four pieces. But in the classical music world, we would you know, generally, and maybe this is something that should change, um, but generally we would never perform only the first movement of Schumann's second symphony. You always perform that as all four movements. And if you don't do that, you don't play it. Um, and so the thought from people, uh, some traditionalists, is you don't clap in between movements because you want to kind of keep this focus, this narrative thread. Now, on the other hand, there are pieces, it, it, it turns out that composers had very different attitudes towards this phenomenon of movements. And there are pieces, the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto is a classic one. After the first movement of that piece, it ends incredibly dramatically, virtuosically. And the soloist will often take a two minute pause because it's tiring. And that's something where it's just so incredible of an ending. You, you really just want to clap afterwards. And that probably would have been expected, encouraged. And so it's become this really problematic thing where people who clap between movements are kind of looked down on by some of the more uh, nose in the air traditionalists. And on the flip side, like there's all these awkward silences sometimes when a piece ends that's really when a movement ends that's really dramatic and no one's clapping. So, Hannah, what are your thoughts, experiences um, with clapping in between movements and, and how do you fall on, on this side of, on this side of everything? I think it's really up to the, the piece itself. Like, especially if the piece is well known, if it's in the canon and everybody is very excited to finally hear, we have mentioned what my favorite is multiple times on this podcast and it's Beethoven seven, especially post pandemic. I'm going to be so like excited to be in a concert hall again. So if they were happen to play Beethoven seven, I am damn well clapping in between all the movements because I love it that much. And I want to clap because I'm that excited. But then if it's other, if it's other pieces that are more dramatic or they sort of need that, that, that moment of silence in between to sort of reflect on the past movement and also cleanse so that you are prepared for the next one. I find the two the two strategies of clapping and not clapping in between mo movements incredibly important, but can also be sort of strategic between the two um, for the listener. And but ultimately, a lot of it is just very up to who is in the audience. And you can sort of just get shamed into clapping or not clapping, or you just you just sit next to somebody who chooses that they are not going to clap and you find yourself clapping and then you suddenly feel like, oh, I shouldn't have clapped or vice versa. Um, so I just feel like it's very situational and we could also go into like a, a longer parallel talk about like, what is sort of like the organization the presenter's responsibility and, and role in sort of creating an environment where audience members feel as if they can or should not clap. 
um, which is a very interesting conversation to me because I feel as if both are very relevant. Um, though I do personally worry, there's all this talk of like classical music is dying and we need to make it more hip and fun because millennials aren't coming, which I personally disagree as a millennial and who has fallen in love with classical music. But I do feel as if the industry in general should just be making classical music more welcoming and accessible, which is hopefully one of the purposes of this podcast. So that's my long spiel to your answer or to your question. No, I think, but I think what you said there was, was perfect. And I think part of the, part of the challenge is uh, I am hoping to give our listeners some tangible advice here because part of the challenge is that we talk about this a lot in the classical music world. What can we do to make this more accessible, make people feel more comfortable in reality most of the changes that are made are around the, the the margins. And, you know, I was even thinking right now, like, what if we decided at the ISO to have a subtitle over the performance that says, like, clapping uh, encouraged now or something. So people people got a signal from us. This is an, you know, this is a... a, a possible time that clapping is, is good. Uh, that I have a feeling would never happen just because of a kind of reticence or, or hesitation to change. There's, there's so much inertia and, um, and it's, it's funny. I, you know, I talk about that right now and it's like, I think that could make sense. Um, but I think what you said there is, is, is important that a lot of it falls on the, on the presenter because, Often it's the presenter's choice. And so I even think about, you, you brought up an excellent example, Beethoven 7. For our listeners who know this piece, um, that's great. If you don't know this piece, maybe this is a good one to go listen to if you're in, in full or at least the end of each movement to experience what the different types of pauses between movements feel like. Because in the case of Beethoven 7, um, after the first movement, which is this very rousing finish, most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, performers will probably take a pretty long break between the first and the second movement, expressly for that purpose. It ends loudly, dramatically. And there, for me, would be a excellent opportunity to applaud. Then you've got some other, uh, after the second movement, which is the slow uh, kind of more funereal, softer movement, it ends very quietly. And there it would almost feel you kind of let it end quietly and it fades out into the distance. And there, if, if an audience member or if the audience in full kind of launched into a big applause, it might disturb some of this uh, tranquil, peaceful mood. So maybe that's an opportunity to sit there in silence and not applaud. And then the third movement ends very rousingly, but often for kind of symphonic narrative purposes, the performers will go straight into the last movement, what we call a taka, which means that you don't really take a long pause. You end yum, bum, 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 bum. Ready, go, bum, ba, bum. And you go straight into the fourth movement. And so there, again, applause would maybe throw a wrench in that because, and so, it's it's a really challenging thing because all of it is so contextual, like like you mentioned. 
Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought up Ataka because that was something that I remember discussing at length uh, at the ISO, especially with the front of house staff, which just to give listeners sort of like a behind the scenes sort of functionality of how concert presenting works, front of house would need to know from myself or our uh, my former boss, your boss currently, Jacob, like when, when do you let the latecomers come in to the, to the performance? And sometimes you would utilize, you would take advantage of that two minute audience clapping break, but sometimes the piece calls for movement one into movement two to go straight into each other. So Ataka, um, and so you don't let in the audience during that time because that just rustles everybody's, yeah, ruffles everybody's feathers. So it's just, that's also a very intricate and important element. And so it just furthers my, my sort of thinking and my argument that like, it's all dependent and contingent on the piece itself, um, which is sort of, which is sort of the point. Cause like why, I think if we do a one size fit all, approach to clapping or not clapping it sort of just takes away the experience and why concert going is so fulfilling in the first place and that like oh the energy and sort of the ability of just you don't know what's going to happen is so wonderful about just attending live performance well so i think and that's if we can give a piece of tangible advice to our our listeners for the moment when that we're currently in, where this is still kind of a slightly uncomfortable thing, and and maybe not all performing arts organizations are are doing a lot to to make people feel un, uh, feel comfortable, you know, and um, all all this stuff is 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 a little challenging. But I think the tangible advice would be, you know, a, a few things. The more kind of preparation and research you can do before you go, and even just looking at the program while you're there and seeing normally any piece with movements will be printed. The movements will be listed and indented under the piece. And so you can kind of know how many movements there are. It can give you a general roadmap of where you might be at at the piece. But, but then to kind of, because the challenge is you want people to, if they hear something really rousing and exciting and they want to burst into applause and show their excitement, like by all means, um, but you know, there are other times where there are, they're infrequent, but there are times where I even feel like, you know, that's, that's, it doesn't bug me that much, but it's a little bit of a bummer that we had this nice, super quiet ending and people like launched into applause and kind of disturbed the moment. And for me that, that, you know, whatever, like I want people to feel comfortable in the concert hall and that's great. But to a certain extent, it is uh, as as rigid as it is. It's also about respecting everybody else in the concert halls right to listen how they hopefully want to listen. So all of what this all boils down to, I think, is, you know, hopefully don't feel uncomfortable clapping when you want to clap. But I always tell people just give a give one or two seconds um, to just, to just, if you want to just make sure and check, like there will be many seasoned concert goers in the audience 
and they can give you cues for that. And, uh, you know, there's, there's an element of what I often feel listening to music is this kind of internal excitement. And so you, you end a piece and it's, that was great. And you want to burst out in applause, but if you just feel that internal excitement and then you, you just wait one or two seconds and if everybody bursts out into rousing applause, then you do it. It's not the ideal scenario, but, but I think hopefully that kind of just clarifies for people what the, what the arguments for and against are. And I think if people are aware of that, then, then in going to concerts and potentially researching pieces and stuff like that, they will start to feel more comfortable. And it's not, there's no right or wrong answer. I mean, I have my own opinions on this and everybody else does. And so I think when you boil it down, it really just comes to like respecting other people's reasonably formed opinions about this and trusting that other people won't be really elitist and um, stuffy about this, which some will, but if they're going to do that, that's their problem. And just kind of giving everyone an opportunity to listen to a piece. Because I even think about it, you know, there's the, the first movement of Beethoven 7 ends and the next, it ends in A major and the first chord of, of the next movement is an A minor chord and it's, it's this very quick turn to a new mood. And there's a very strong musical argument for going quasi ataka into the second movement. Um, and a conductor might make that decision. I always see it as part of my responsibility as the conductor to, if I want to go ataka, I'll kind of leave my hands up and signal to the audience, like, I'm, I'm about to go on. And so I think that's the other thing is it's some of the onus is on the performers. If they do this big finish and they put their hands down and stuff like that, then they shouldn't be mad if, if, uh, if people start clapping. All of this to say, hopefully, you know, it gives a little more perspective on the, the challenges of this. But, but you know, if, if, if our listeners know that, then maybe they can feel more comfortable clapping in the concert hall. I'm so glad that you mentioned that you will put your hand up to sort of sig signal um, to the audience behind you that you're going to go straight into the next. And I think for the for the listeners here that are newcomers to attending, that's another indicator for yourself to, to look at, to look at the conductor of the performance to see when might be a good time to end or to um, that they have ended and for you to start clapping because sometimes a piece will end very quietly and you just don't know. And also that silence between the time that the piece is ending and has ended is so lovely and ephemeral and you can just feel the energy in the air and it's always just like a bummer when someone claps too soon because you're just thinking like let's all experience the beauty of what we just heard to heard collectively um so i think like watching the conductor he or she will straighten up when they are done and they will put their arms down. And that has indicated that, okay, now you may clap and now you can all rejoice with everyone else around you over what you've just heard. And then another thing that I will recommend is if you are like, if you are super, super nervous, or even just in general to help you prepare prior to a concert is 
yes, listening um, to the pieces that you're about to hear. Um, but I would recommend further, like trying to find live performances of those pieces on YouTube. And sometimes the audiences in those live performance halls might have a different type of uh, culture than um, where you are about to attend, but it still is going to be beneficial um, for you to sort of be able to indicate like, oh, how do people generally generally react to this piece to the end of this movement and things of that matter. And, and also just listening to pieces prior to going um, to see a concert, which we have talked about in the past is incredibly beneficial um, regarding some of our listening techniques of this podcast. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And uh, that kind of jumps ahead to the other topic that I wanted to talk about, maybe let's, which is preparing for going to a concert, but maybe let's, we, we spent a lot of time on that clapping one, but I think it's the, the hardest one for a lot of people. So there are a few other questions that I get a lot. Um, why, why do we need to be silent or do we need to be silent? You know, I think that's another interesting one. I'm curious, your feeling, Hannah, you know, I, I think there's not the same, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't know that there's the same uh, kind of adherence to pure silence in musicals, for example. There's, you know, there's opportunities to laugh, there's opportunities to, uh, it, it's not quite the same stuffy atmosphere of you have to be silent all the time. Um, but there's, I think there's pros and cons to being silent, and this is the one concert etiquette thing that that I kind of feel is is still important and is is worth uh worth adhering to and that's being as silent as you can be you know when people get upset when people cough that drives me crazy because of course everyone needs to cough um but you know I think the reason why people often, and myself included, often get a little annoyed when people are loud in a concert hall or talking even, is that part of the live experience, at least in my mind, is that we've all come there committed to the idea that we're going to kind of intentionally and in a focused manner listen to this program of music listen to the finer details that the, the, these really high-level musicians are attending to. And because it's a kind of auditory medium, you, you want as much silence as possible. In the same vein, you know, it doesn't bug me when I'm listening to a concert if someone's fidgeting a few seats down, as long as they're doing it relatively quietly, because visual distractions don't really bug me. Um, it's, it's about, it's about the listening. And I think it's the same, you know, if you were watching a movie and someone was standing in front of the screen, that would bug you. But if someone is talking three rows away and it's a little hum or something and the movie, you know, the, the sound of the movie, you can still hear and get the, then it might not annoy you. And I think that's, so I think that's my thoughts on being silent and I've actually struggled a lot with the, I like classical music in all spaces and forms, but I, I have kind of a, there's something that I struggle with about the, the kind of new moves towards 
accessibility in classical music, specifically with the idea of kind of performing in spaces that are more familiar to people. So like having concerts in bars and um, outdoors on the sidewalk. That's great. As, like, I'd rather people do that than not do that. But I don't think that's a replacement for the live concert experience. Because one of the greatest things in my mind about going to a live concert is that it will be pretty silent. Everyone's committed to that. And you're all there with this kind of shared experience of we're going to take an hour and a half out of our time to sit here and, and, and listen to this music that's been picked for us and that's been practiced really intensely. So I'm curious your thoughts on that, Hannah. You know, um, was that weird coming from the, the world of musicals to, to the classical world and having to sit there in silence? Um, what, what was your feeling and what, what is your feeling now on that? You have a very interesting perspective that is incredibly valid and also lies in sort of classical music's greatest strength, which is in my one of their greatest strengths, which to me is just level of quality. Like you cannot get that type of musical quality and that's that's the premier type of quality that you can get within your region, in my opinion. Like you walk into the um, the hall doors and you enter this space full of musicians, about 70, 80, 90 musicians who have dedicated their lives to perfecting an art form and performing works of composers that have like dedicated their lives to creating the highest quality of art and the two collaborating together create this experience that is just, you cannot get anywhere else. And I think that is to be emphasized again on the organizational level, in my opinion, in order for audience members to understand that you are getting the best of the best in this region. I was about to say prior to your to laying out how as eloquent as you just did about sort of the the benefits of setting aside time to go and see silently a performance. I was about to say like, well, if you're a bit nervous about going um, to that sort of degree of intenseness start small, start with those outdoor performances where you can be a little bit more relaxed, but also know that like, oh, you could get 10, maybe not 10 times the amount of quality, but like the sound quality is going to change significantly once you are able to feel comfortable to go into a hall that is acoustically designed to amplify that quality that you are about to receive. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting discussion to, to talk about my like theater background. Silence is a great tool in theater, but it has to be placed very strategically in the theater world. Like it's not very smart to start a performance with silence because everyone is just hustling and bustling to get in the door. But like silence is utilized to emphasize something very important within the plot structure of that theater work, whether it be a play or a musical. 
I think some of the fun musicals are meant to be loud all the way through, honestly. And that's what, that is what makes it so fun. Um, it's, it's apples and oranges, but still both valuable. And I think silence is just utilized differently because yes, musicals are top, top notch quality, especially in like the Broadway world. I love Lincoln Center theaters productions. I think like they, they are something like Americans should be so proud of. We don't like no other country produces that type of artistic quality. Um, so it's all very interesting to me. I think the shaming that goes on around no, like noise level that is just natural human noise sort of needs to be addressed. And I'm just not sure how to. And it, it, you just feel so terrible when you do sort of get called out by like a fellow patron. Like, I remember we were at a concert together and I was working on my phone and there was a man behind behind us that was like, ma'am, put your phone away. And I just felt like I was a six-year-old child in church getting in trouble again. And I just am glad that that happened to me and not to like a paying, like a paying patron. But I just wonder like what, what happens when those emergencies do come up? Like I was on my phone because I was coordinating uh, a change in a uh, car pickup for the guest artist that was about to, that had just changed their flight. I mean, I could have excused myself to go and do that. So that's another thing that I'm curious about, like what you think, Jacob, about like phone etiquette, because that's a huge conversation as well in the theater world as well. Like I think Patty Lapone like stole somebody's phone because they were on it in the middle of a performance. Yeah, so. I I remember that I remember that well actually, and I I really felt bad on your behalf too. That guy was incredibly grumpy, and um, but but that's exactly it's it's a great it's a great illustration of of you know kind of the crux of this issue, which is that, and you said some other stuff there too that I want to talk about just very briefly. But like in in terms of phones and in terms of that general discussion of like emergencies come up it's 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 not practical to set aside two hours of your life um always and just completely turn off and you know and people have stuff that they need to do in their lives um and i think that's what i meant about the kind of visual distraction like if you're doing something like that and and someone gets an email on their phone and their phone is silenced and so it doesn't make this big ding in the middle of some pause in the in the music, and and they've been respectful. They've they've silenced their phone, and they're not, and they have to take their phone out a little bit and like, uh, you know, send an email or redo something. Like, by all means, I don't think you know people have to deal with what they have to deal with. And if it's a visual distraction for someone, uh, close your eyes. Just keep listening and close your eyes. Like that's that's my my thought on that. And so in that vein, I'd, I'd say to our listeners, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's not worth being upset about visual distractions in, in my book. And also I wouldn't worry too much about creating the occasional visual distraction. What I do think, and this, this takes us to our next, um, our final like kind of etiquette question, but, but I do think one thing that's, Another thing that I struggle with is, you know, I, I what you said there about kind of the, the opportunity that you have to listen in this way is really unique. And I think it comes down to kind of 
respecting that and committing to that. And I think there's something about, you know, I see the concert going experience as this opportunity to share in this communal experience with a bunch of other people who have similarly committed to paying attention, to enjoying this music, to listening. Um, and so if you go, I can understand why it would bug someone. It would kind of disturb their communal experience if you go to a concert and there's someone sitting next to you texting the whole time. It's hard not to notice that and it's hard to not in some way, just like any kind of communal experience, if you're, you know, if you're just playing a sports game and you have a, someone on your team who's not giving any effort, it's, it's frustrating. And maybe it's a pickup game and the result doesn't matter, but like you showed up to the pickup game because you wanted to have some fun and you were, you were trusting that everyone would commit some effort. And so if someone's there just texting and wasting the experience, I can understand someone being upset about that. Similarly with the silence thing. If someone's there and just conducting themselves with very little respect for the people around them and not committed and kind of close to the same way that other people are, I can understand why that rubs people the wrong way. If someone takes out their phone because they have to answer an email and they do it discreetly and they take care of that, they put it back, they come back and are listening and then like no one, you know, it's just about standard human decency. And that brings me to the other, the other last topic, which we can just cover very quickly, which is some people worry, I think, about what they need to wear. And this is a huge question, too, because, you know, people are, there's a huge conversation around accessibility. Um, you know, wh why do we require, which we certainly don't, but why does it feel like we require people to really dress up um, if we want anyone and everyone to be able to come to these concerts. And what I'd say about wearing, what, what do you need to wear? Um, because I've kind of gone back and forth personally on this issue. Um, cause you know, Hannah, you've seen how I dress and, and how I, you know, what I what, what my priorities are like in life. I've always been inclined to like show up in a ripped t-shirt and, uh, some ridiculous cargo shorts or something. Um, I, uh, where I've landed on the issue of what do I need to wear is wear something that you feel comfortable with, um, that lends a certain amount of respect in your mind to the event that you're committing yourself to. And so what I think about that is, you know, if you don't own a suit because you don't have enough money to buy a suit that's totally fine. And if the nicest thing that you own, or not even that, just a nice outfit for you is whatever it might be, a, a, a polo shirt or something, then wear that. Hopefully, uh, it's easier said than done, but hopefully you feel comfortable in wearing that because you know that you've kind of committed to presenting yourself in some way that shows respect for the event that you're going to. And I think that's how I've ultimately settled on this issue is that just like the phone thing we were talking about, if you know someone, I think it's like, you know, if you commit to a communal experience where um, if you have someone who showed up to your wedding and you knew they owned a suit, but they showed up in a T-shirt, 
you'd be a little annoyed. And on one hand, again, for me, I come at this from the perspective of, I don't care what anybody wears. I'd be the person who is wearing a t-shirt, but it's something that just in, in life, people care about what people wear and there's an element of formality. And really what weddings should be about is you showed up to show that you care about this couple um, and you want to show them your support. And so what you wear is immaterial. But in reality, there is everyone kind of interprets what people wear as some form of commitment and respect. And so that's the only thought that I have about what to wear to a concert, which is that wear something that you feel like for yourself demonstrates some level of commitment, just like silencing your cell phone, committing to trying to focus for these two hours. And if you get some email that you have to answer, by all means, you, you answer it, trying to be as quiet as you can out of respect for your fellow patrons. I think most of it comes down to, to that. And I'm, but I'm curious what you think, Hannah, you're probably more forward thinking in the uh, fashion department than I am, but that's, that's, that's my thought on, on clothes. No, I think you said it incredibly well in a sense where you sort of look at it as if you are matching your level of investment into the performance itself. So if you're looking forward to it, which I hope that you are, and maybe you spent some money on the tickets or you were gifted the tickets, I feel like either of those situations indicate some sort of investment, like you said, Jacob. And so just dressing accordingly, but also you're going to be likely sitting down. So something like that you can sit down in and are comfortable in. And I would just say like, don't overthink it. If, if people sort of look at you funny based on what you're wearing, just like, just shrug it off. I just feel like sometimes we live in a society that is so judgmental and that's like separate conversation whatsoever. And you sort of touched on it yourself, Jacob, but I just think like, I would love, I would rather than talking about this, I would love to have a discussion about like, how do we foster a culture of acceptance and inclusivity, regardless of background and, and income, socioeconomic status in classical music? Like that is far more interesting to me. Beyond that, just wear something all black. I think all black is classy, like black jeans, black top. That could be for I like either way you identify gender wise. I feel like that works. Um, and I think like, that's all I really have to say. Yeah. Yeah. This reminds me actually of a, of a story and it's a challenging thing because this reminds me. So I went at one point, um, in college to, uh, a performance at the Met of, of Wagner's Get to Damerung. And I had gotten the tickets. I'd been gifted them. It was, I probably had never been more excited for a performance in my life. Took the train from Connecticut. You know, it's a two hour train ride. Went, um, attended this five hour performance. I brought my score of the piece. I showed up uh, with my full score, which I was planned to follow along the whole time. Didn't really think through the fact that the lights in the house would be like completely off. Um, but it was actually, so it was my first time attending like a serious large scale live opera. Um, and I 
just kind of naturally, like no one was more excited for that performance than me. No one was more ready to respect the music. Like I was there um, with my score. Uh, you know, I had listened to the piece a hundred times before going, all that stuff. And I wore just kind of unwittingly, I, I, I like didn't even really think about what I was going to wear to this opera. And I wore like a t-shirt and jeans and I showed up and I was actually, I was gifted this, like, you know, my, my partner at the time and I were gifted these tickets in, uh, like basically an executive box. And we were sitting with two people, a guy who was in a tuxedo and a woman who was in like a super nice gown. And, um, and I felt like a little bit of an idiot because like I showed up, you know, I had my score. I'm carrying my, my like massive Götterdammerung score around and like upset, like just like totally zoned in. And then at the intermissions, I'm walking around and like everybody else is in full tuxes, black tie, whatever. Um, and that was a moment for me of like, you know, that was uh, part of me was very defensive and like, I shouldn't care what any like. I want to wear what I want to wear, like classical music, like I have the right priorities, blah, blah, blah. But then I also kind of, you know, a little later in my life and a little more life experience, still from the frame of reference of really not caring about clothes at all, stepped back and, and was kind of like, you know, I could have done better there. I could have thought about the people around me and kind of realized that this is important to some people. I had, by all means, I had the privilege, resources to commit a little more effort into the thought of what was I going to wear to this performance. And if I had done that and I could sleep easy at night and then people around me were still being disdainful, then, you know, by all means, that's their problem. And everything you said about inclusivity and, and uh, acceptance, I, I totally agree with. But that was a moment for me of like, you know what? I showed respect to this event and process in every way except for my clothes. And I could have. It would have taken two minutes to just think about that and think that maybe it affects the people around. You know, they might want to go and really have this elegant experience for whatever reason. And so, yeah, that's kind of where I fall on the clothes issue, but I think you said it well. And, you know, if I had worn all black, for example, to that, even a black t-shirt and black jeans, it probably wouldn't have even drawn that many eyes, I have a feeling. It was because I was wearing some, like, forest green t-shirt and, like, blue jeans and tennis shoes. So that's that's where I land on, on the, the what to wear. So I think, actually... Um, you know, I was going to talk, I, I was thinking we would talk about like how to prepare for a concert as well, but maybe let's just do that in another episode because this went on longer than I expected, but I think it's because these are, these are, are good questions. And I think just to close, I mean, I, I think most of what this comes down to, if we kind of sum it up, basically everything that we've talked about is a balancing act between feeling as comfortable as you possibly can with yourself um, so that you have a enjoyable and thoughtful experience and respecting the other people around you. And this reminds me, I, before we close, I had one other thing that you had mentioned, Hannah, that I, uh, that kind of 
gave me a little little thought bubble. But I think actually what what you said, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. Um, part of the challenge, I think, is that at, at least the way that I view the live concert experience, um, it is it's hard often to prepare for that by dipping your toe in, like you said, in like an outdoor concert or something like that, or easing in in that way, which which is a totally natural thought to, to let me do something a little easier first and then take on the full live concert experience. But to me, there there is something a little di- like when I go to an outdoor classical concert, I want to drink some beer, talk to my friends. And really it's about like having fun first and foremost and having some nice, for me, I love listening to classical music also in the background and having it going on, but having a nice conversation and whatever. And I think at risk of sounding incredibly like curmudgeonly and old and, but I think approaching the live concert experience from the, from the lens of like, this is going to be fun first and foremost is actually a little, it, it can be a little misleading leading, leading, leading. because as when I think about dipping your toe in, what that often to me would, would suggest for a live concert is try at home for five or 10 minutes to listen really intently without doing anything else, you know, like turn on YouTube or something and practice just focusing for five or 10 minutes which is really hard for people. But that is because I think the mental experience of listening to a concert outside versus when you're listening outside and then you go to a classical concert, if you're in that zone, all you're gonna feel is like, this sucks, this isn't fun. Like I'm sitting here silently, I can't drink, I can't talk to my friends. But it's a different kind of mental process. It's more like, you know, I don't think people sit down in the morning and do yoga first and foremost because it's like fun. There's a lot of meaning to be gained from that and it can become very fun. But to me, that sounds terrible. But I, I might still do it because it's potentially good for me, you know. And and that's a, it's not to say that going to concerts can't be very, very fun. But I think that's where I come at it from is is it's an attentional endeavor it's a endeavor of focus endeavor of intense meaning interpretation listening of course and and so i think that is where most of this etiquette stuff for me boils down to is like committing to that idea and process and from there just just operating with kind of respect and the the thing that i personally love about that is that that at least in my mind, is inherently totally accessible because anyone can commit to this process, any socioeconomic, cultural, gender, race, background can commit to that idea. Um, And anyone can treat other people with respect. And so if that's all it comes down to and we all do that, then I think (laughs) easier said than done, but but our accessibility problem is largely solved. but I'm curious to get your final kind of thoughts on, on that and just the whole etiquette discussion. Hannah, what, what are your what are your final thoughts? Yeah, I think overall, I think what you just said was in, incredibly accurate and 
intelligent and thoughtful. Um, and I think just being able to go into a live classical music performance in a hall that is meant to generally be some sort of silent and therefore adding an etiquette element can be daunting but incredibly rewarding and therefore it is valuable and worth your time and investment if you are interested at all about it and I think just as a as a tip is just to baby steps just start small go to see performances of pieces that you are perhaps familiar or excited about it's it's probably really difficult. I can't speak on this because honestly, I have only ever attended live classical music performances as a worker. Like I, I have not paid. I feel bad. to. I will do this when I'm able to post pandemic, but I feel bad that I have like not paid to go see a live performance of classical music. So I can't, I honestly can't speak on the monetary investment of it besides my own personal time exact uh, for example but i feel as if also going with some going with a buddy is incredibly beneficial as well because people go to see uh music performances regardless of genre more so for a social aspect than any than any other like i can bring you statistics from a marketing class that i am currently taking um so i feel like that is also going to be very beneficial if you are at all hesitant or nervous about it because then i think you'll have a buddy and you can help each other with the listening tips of this podcast and hopefully we can do a part two about it so that's that's sort of what i'm thinking at the moment jacob yeah i think that's that's a great suggestion and just to close i think what you said there i mean i think about it's great like I um, meditate pretty frequently and I use the app Headspace and I find it fascinating that, you know, Headspace, well, uh, it, inherently meditation is like an entirely solitary activity. You can't like, obviously you can't get into someone else's brain. You can't, you can meditate with other people, but, but despite doing that, there's all these things on the app of Headspace and I've just like in kind of my experiences with meditation. I've seen there's tons of communities around meditation because it, it feels nice to be part of a community and to, after you meditate, kind of talk about your experience with someone else who just did that. And so I think for, for that reason, like buddies are incredible. And it's not, this is not to say that going to a concert can't be an intensely social experience. I mean, there's nothing more rewarding for me I've found than like talking to people about what I just listened to at intermission and after the concert. I mean, that's literally probably, <laughs> it's probably my favorite thing in life to do is talk with my friends who I feel like have gone. And often for me, it's also talking with people who are going for the first or second time and are having a genuine reaction. I'm so curious to hear what they, but the point is that, you know, we're not doing that in the moment because if you're doing that in the moment, you're not actually experiencing it and you're not, and so I think that is, that's the distinction for me between outdoor concerts, that kind of stuff, and, and committing to a, a, a real live, silent, indoor concert experience. Um, but I love the idea of going with a buddy and, and 
you know, this can be such an inclusive process. It's so great when instead of going, instead of leaving the hall and being like, can you believe that that person was coughing in between movements? Like instead coming away and, and being like, oh my God, like the, the ending of that piece was so incredible. And just the journey that we went on, it was, you know, it's, it's just so much more of a positive, uh, meaningful experience. So a little bit of a meandering chat about concert etiquette, but I think these are, these are topics that are um, important and certainly, hopefully for our listeners, there was something new or illuminating in there because I think just knowing about the discussion around these things often helps. Um, and so, yeah, we, we went uh, longer than expected, but we'll do another a part two to this about actually applying the techniques uh, from this podcast and just like what to do in preparation for actually going to a concert. And Hannah alluded to it a little bit there. But I think, you know, researching pieces beforehand, is that worthwhile? Uh, are program notes worthwhile? Is going to a pre-concert talk worthwhile? All that stuff we'll discuss on, on part two of this podcast. So in the meantime, Hannah, thanks so much for, for joining us uh, as always. And, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll see you soon for your, maybe we'll record before your birthday when you're fully vaccinated. That would be great. I would yeah. love that. Yeah. Let's, let's record part two and then uh, celebrate its release with a blowout for your birthday. <laughs> Wonderful. I can't yeah, wait. Yeah. <laughs> a full, fully vaccinated party. That sounds incredible. Um, I, yeah. Let's do it. All right. Well, thanks to all of our listeners for joining us as always. And we will be back soon with part two of our discussion on attending live performances. <laughs>